You're listening to Asians Represent, a series on the OneShot Podcast Network. I'm your host, Daniel Kwan, and this episode is brought to you by our amazing supporters on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash aznsrepresent for exclusive content, show notes, and more. Welcome, everyone, back to Asians Represent. Uh, this is episode 67 of the podcast, and I have a returning guest, returning guest all the way from episode 15. And I had to look back. Episode 15 was January 24, 2020. In the before times, in the before mm-hmm. times, we did an episode called Diversity in D&D, the Lunar New Year, and Islam in TTRPGs. And we actually talked about... Um, representations of Islam in RPGs and depictions of Southwest Asia. Um, and we talked about one of your games this year, It Was Never Yours, which yeah. I glowed about because I absolutely love the concept of repatriation as like, you know, as a former scholar. Um, but one thing that I've been doing for each new episode of this season is doing a, a truckload of research and doing a little introduction. Because you and I have like, we've obviously kept in touch, but we haven't seen each other in person in a really long time. It has been almost four years and we haven't had you on the podcast for a really long time. And so you have been very, very busy making this industry a better place. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's been a wild four years. Like when we, like when we did that, I was taking on my first freelance contract like my resume was it was never yours and (laughs) one one page indie game and like some essays i'd put on my blog and now i've like now between the two of us you've won an any i've consulted on any winning books that means you've won an any that means yeah (laughs) i've won an any i've been nominated for an any i've lost to myself for an any technically (laughs) um I'm a Nebula nomination <laughs> for Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. It's been huge. Where yeah, like you've done D and D Call of the Netherdeep. Mm-hmm. You've done you've done Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. You've done Taldora Reborn. You were the consultant on that. And you and I both worked on the new Tian Sha books for Pathfinder Second Edition. And you and I also both worked on another project that we can't talk about yet. But yeah. we were talking about it beforehand. Um, and it, we were both kind of like, oh, fuck, it's a shame that we can't talk about it because it would have been perfect for this. Yeah, it would have been absolutely perfect for this. And it's approaching this in a really interesting way. And I think, yeah, but I'm really looking forward to when it comes out because I want to talk about it. When it comes out, we'll do another episode and we'll have (laughs) you on and we'll talk about it again. Except this time we won't speak in this cryptic way. Yeah. We are right now because we've opened up the podcast with, hey. Bashir Gauss is this award-winning tabletop freelance TTRPG writer, developer, cultural consultant who's worked on all of these amazing projects and has done a lot of like independent work. And then let's talk about this like very ambiguous and vague project that we both worked on and provide no context to our audience. Um, But we did work on a project both as cultural consultants, myself also as a writer, um, and it is coming out who knows when. But I think we could promise you that it's going to be game changing mm-hmm. i think it's going to be game changing but we're not talking about this mystery project we're talking about decolonization we're talking about this word that 
you hear all the time on social media when you're talking about TTRPGs. Um, you hear about it from people who kind of are in the same circles as us. You hear about it from the people who don't like what we do, who think that this word decolonization is a bad thing for RPGs. And this episode is all about sort of demystifying what decolonization means, what does it look like in TTRPGs, and also this upcoming game you have called Guns Blazing that is a really cool. The trailer dropped today. I watched it. I I thought it was incredible. I'm really excited. Um, But I think your game Guns Blazing is doing, you're practicing what you're preaching on this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, well, we'll get into it in a moment, but when we start, I'm immediately going to make everyone more confused about what decolonization is before we start explaining, like, demystify it even further. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, the guns blazing is all about decolonization, but it's all about decolonization in a very specific, very literal context. Uh, because when we're talking about decolonization, we're talking about at least two related ideas at least in my opinion because you have you have the much broader sense which is i think the most common one that people are used to talking about it in which is like decolonizing uh ideas decolonizing societies and concept decolonizing the mind or uh the social lexicon and the like decolonizing mechanics and then you have decolonization as a much more literal thing uh kind of the original use of it of finding a colonial project and making it no longer be a colonial project to the greatest degree possible and struggling to make it just not a colonial project at all. And we conflate the two, but I think that on some level muddles things, like it can confuse things further when you aren't sure which of those you're meant to be talking about. Because when you're talking about like, decolonizing the idea of an RPG or decolonizing the concept of performing a certain action or a location in an RPG, you it's very important to know which of these you're talking about. Otherwise, you end up kind of pulling the rug out, of pe- out under people where they go, well, I decolonized it. And they learn, no, you haven't. You've got to do it again. And it has the same name, but it's a different thing. Yeah, I think that's the one thing. And honestly, I'm glad we started with that because... I think it's important to point out how confusing this is because when folks are trying to be better, because I think people listen to Asians represent not because they, they like the sound of our voices. Maybe there are people who like the sound of my voice because I guess I'm here all the time. But I think folks listen to Asians represent because they want to learn. And when we talked about decolonization and we kind of said, Hey, this is the episode. A lot of people are like, Oh, I got to tune in for this. Or I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do that because of time zone differences. Where can I watch or listen to this? And I think there's a hunger for an understanding of what this means, right? If you look online, there's actually an incredible tool called the Racial Equity Tools Glossary. And in it, they actually define decolonization as the active resistance against colonial powers and a shifting of power towards political, economic, educational, cultural, um, psychic independence, and power that originate from a colonized nation's own indigenous culture. This process occurs politically and also applies to personal and societal, um, psychic, cultural, political, agricultural, and educational deconstruction of colonial oppression. That is a very long definition. And people are going to think, what do you mean by psychic? I mean, like in the psyche, the, the shared sort of 
mind of a, of a nation or yeah, a community. Psychology might be like the way that yes. doesn't get people thinking about superpowers. Exactly. <laughs> but when you say that, you're yeah. like, this episode is about decolonizing RPGs. How does that apply to RPGs? What 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 is decolonization apart from undoing colonialism is what I think most people would think. But mm-hmm. you mentioned that there everybody's got a different definition. I want to know what yours is. Like when we say decolonization and within the context of working on games, what do we mean? So I define it in three ways. There is literal decolonization in games. That means taking things like, approaching things like, how did you handle a colonial empire in your game? Is this being handled in an acceptable way? Are you portraying this as like a a praiseworthy thing to do, which is common in like empire building games more than it is like RPGs, but can be an issue. D&D, for example, has had a long issue with this. And I think D&D and it's like D&D and Pathfinder are at the point where literal decolonization isn't a huge isn't a huge issue at the moment where you're getting into the get you're getting there are still issues that need to be addressed with regards to colonization but they tend to be the second and third order stuff rather than the very literal like this adventure is about going into the land owned by this people who are very clear stand-ins for indigenous people or some form of minority killing them and taking their land and ruling it as your own we've kind of gotten past that point uh with current releases and we're two things like social decolonization where you're going, what are the power structures and the ideas left behind by colonial constructs? How do we handle those? How do we uh, get rid of the, get rid of those or ap- approach them appropriately, depending on the sort of game you're trying to make, mm. um, etc. And then you have like what I've been calling cultural decolonization, uh, okay. what I think is referred to in that definition is like psychic decolonization of how do you approach the effect of those first two things on people's minds and how they think about the world. And I think those are all very different things. And there are like, there are big deal academic arguments about this. Uh, One of the like essays I brought up um, in our thing was like decolonization is not a metaphor by Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, uh, which was an essay basically about how the definition of decolonization is being muddled with against what they would refer to as literal decolonization or like what I would refer to as little literal decolonization in favor of the second and third order stuff. Um, And like all of them are important, but it's easy to kind of muddle what's going on there. And then it's also easy to kind of take it to, um, well, probably we'll get to, I'll probably touch on this at a later point, but kind of, Take it to things where it's unclear whether or not you're dealing with decolonization or other forms of social justice. Yeah, I think those are, I really like that, the literal, social, and cultural. I would definitely agree with you on calling it cultural, right? Because you think about like the, in the literal sense, yeah, that's something that I think most people think about when they are reacting negatively to conversations about decolonization. Um, social, I think, is really great because you mentioned the sort of the, the legacy of the past. And I think that's something that we really have to, we deal with a lot on like Asians represent and then just as marginalized peoples in RPGs, right? A really old, relatively old gaming tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And then cultural, the idea of like, 
hey, what is the effect of, of like literal, but in our case for RPGs, the social aspect of decolon- decolonization on how we approach our work and how we interact with games media. I would say that, I think I would say decolonization is, apart from just being the undoing of colonial elements, is basically examining where one group has basically taken control of either lands, resources, cultures, languages, and relationships, and have taken that from another and made it its own. Um, and we see that in RPG works because tabletop RPGs have had not a long history of literally taking land, but a very long history of misrepresenting Asian cultures, communities, where writers and publishers and illustrators rely on harmful tropes and stereotypes to portray these cultures and take ownership of them within their game, right? And these range from sort of subtle to even downright egregious in nature. And these have been well-documented, like, by Asians represent, like, you know, through our analyses of Oriental Adventures, Al-Kadim, Karatur, or Rokugan in Legend of the Five Rings. Um, and I think one thing that I would add to both of us is that decolonization is very deeply connected to removing racism. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're not just talking about this colonial presence, we're talking about racism because they kind of go hand in hand. And examining one means examining the other. Yeah, so much of the modern history of racism goes back to the colonial era and its long-lasting side effects. And, like, removing racism is, I think, the single most, like, obvious form of where this is, this needs to happen, when it's so obvious that it has its own category of being, like, (laughs) of being racism instead of people don't recognize it as decolonizing as an idea because they they know it as this own thing that's pernicious and ever-present kind of in everything you interact with on some level or another, either in that it's there or that it's absent and that absence is clear enough that it's remarked upon either by the audience or in the show or in the setting, whatever it is work you're uh, working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing is that, and I think this kind of, helps me think about decolonization is that decolonization is a goal, but not an end point, right? Mm-hmm. It's a process and not a product, right? Yeah. We, we have, we kind of laud these things that come out. We think about like Radiant Citadel. We think about some candle keep and we think, oh, you know, this is it. No, it's not it. These are milestones. These are mm-hmm. milestones in a very long process that a lot of work needs to be put into. And and that said, you know, we've talked about the ambiguities of decolonization, but have kind of broken it down to an examination of sort of racism and an ongoing process to sort of remove colonial elements, um, or at least re-examine how colonialism is portrayed um, and the power dynamic of it is portrayed in games through sort of the literal, social, and cultural mechanisms that you've talked about. But when we're actually looking at tabletop RPGs, right, what does this look like? Because there are always going to be folks who will say, well, these fantasy worlds, this isn't a one-to-one representation of the real world. Like, what do you say to that? If people are like, well, Karatur isn't, so it's, like, not, it's not Asia. That's not yeah. an Asian name. Karatur is an excellent example because I think it's 
a really clear example of like social de uh, decolonialism that decolonization that needs to happen because everything that goes into Karator, everything that built on Car that was built on for Karator was built on like the idea of the East as of like of from China, the Western from, gaze, yeah, from the Western gaze of the Orientalist Orientalist view of the East. Like, the view of the East in the colonial period, what people thought it was like based on these stereotypes, and then extrapolating it out, and then you build the edifice on it, and the scaffolding that built the edifice is gone, but the edifice is still there. You just don't recognize how it was built, because you're looking at the thing rather than the architectural blueprints. But if you go and look at those blueprints, it's like, yeah, that's a real crap foundation. <laughs> this needs yeah. to change. Yeah, I mean, there's a literal town called Sing Tao. In, in show where they do oh my, oh my god they make beer <laughs> like it's it's one of the worst it's one of the worst examples of it. and by worst i mean it's the best example of how bad you know colonialism kind of appears in tabletop rpgs and yes while Karatur is not a one-to-one -one representation of like china even though there is a china and then it's adjacent to Japan. And then to the south is South Asia. And then there's a whole Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. These products aren't created in a vacuum, right? They're not created in a vacuum because they were inspired by something. And in this case, it's stereotypes. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, and a bad interpretation of one. But I think when we look at decolonization in TTRPGs and we look at literal social and cultural factors... I think the biggest thing is a secondary question of how do we rebalance power, dominance, and control? Because like you said, Caratour is a great example of that. It's a product that's written literally narratively, like the, the campaign setting is written in a, as like a travel guide almost. <laughs> um, but how do we take something that was written from the Western gaze and has very egregious stereotypes in it that come from that outside perspective and rebalance that power and make a new, like we talked about Tian Sha. We're not going to actually talk about Tian Sha in the process of that yet because it's not out yet and Paizo hasn't updated <laughs> yeah. it yet. Um, yeah, we... <laughs> but how do we make meaningful change? So there are a, there's a lot of ways you can go about it because you can go with, you know, let's start to do a new thing entirely from the ground up as like that, but that's really difficult. That's expensive. That's a lot riskier, etc. Um, you can reform what's there, which is always fundamentally limited. Uh, but one of the things that I that I think has promise is to portray societies from the perspective from their perspective. So, like, if you're writing about Neverwinter, you write about Neverwinter from the perspective of a guy who lives in Neverwinter, and these are the adventures you're going to have as someone from Neverwinter. Um, whereas, like, the, th the old, the thing that previous games would often do was to go, okay, here is this fantastical setting in the, uh, in, the, in like, what we're going to term an exotic land, and, or what the author is going to term an exotic land, we are referring to some dude who wrote this 20 years ago, not the two of us. <laughs> um, I yeah. realize how that might be taken. Um, and we're going to portray it as if you're a tourist there. Here's like the tourist's guide to whatever. And if even, even if you just do the bare minimum of going, 
No, this is from the perspective of the people here who have their own stories and their own history and their own conflicts. You can deal with a lot of those problems and you can at least minimize it. You can get out of the literal colonization uh, step of this and down to like into social or cultural levels where you still there's still stuff you would wish you could do away with entirely or that you'll need to take some bigger risks to do away with but you're in a much better place um and the one that i think like is implicit to how wizards and paizo and a lot of our own initiatives uh have tried to handle this but isn't really talked about on podcast as much is you find people from the area who haven't gotten to tell their stories you give them cash to tell their stories and you give them the pro- the creative freedom or project management positions to, to to tell those stories in the ways that they wish. And like, yeah, there's going to be variations. Different people are going to do it different ways or have disagreements with how other people are going to do without other people are going to handle a given culture or setting. But it goes, it man, it is a enormous shift in how these areas end up being portrayed. Like, you can just kind of look at the difference between, um, which of these aren't under NDA? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's no problem. While you think about which ones are, are not under NDA as examples, I want to also, like, kind of build on what you're saying about, like, you're asking for meaningful representation mm-hmm. in addressing appropriation and racism. Because, like we said, racism, cultural appropriation... These are all, these all come hand in hand when we're talking about decolonizing RPG media, right? We're, yes, there are some calls to like completely remove things that are like extremely racist and harmful, but there are also calls to rewrite things. But from the perspectives of the people who, I don't want to say are representatives, but from the perspective of the insider, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we look at, this is what we can talk about the relaunch of the Tian Sha campaign setting for Pathfinder second edition. And I'm first of all, super, 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 super proud that almost like half of the staff list on that has been on Asians represent or is in this community. (laughs) And it's, it's exactly what we wanted to achieve. Right. But that is a campaign setting that is building on something that has a lot of problems, but Paizo is giving agency mm-hmm. and decision-making power to those who are affected by it to try to make it better. I think that is a better approach than say only hiring a cultural consultant, because I'm sure you as a cultural consultant have run into the problem of being like, well, I can comment on these things, but I'm not actually doing the work and you can completely ignore my comments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm like, the point at which the cultural consultant is in, you may be at the damage control phase. One of my first projects as a cultural consultant, I think you'd recommended me to the company, though I'm not going to name the company or the specific project. Uh, By the time it got to me, it was in layout. Any change I made couldn't change layout significantly. I want to know what this is. (laughs) I'll tell you after the recording stops. Tell me after. Yeah, tell me after. I want to know. (laughs) <laughs> I, or you could put it in the chat. Yeah. I also actually recommended you for another one that I worked on. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, re- was, I recommended you for that one. Yeah. <laughs> and that was in layout. And that meant like I had, to, <laughs> that one was very funny because I had to get into canon arguments about a property that I greatly enjoy 
with yes. people on the project over it because I disagreed with them on ca- like canon interpretation of an adaptation. I was like, actually, no, that's you don't you aren't obligated to put this in. This wasn't in the original work. You or someone else on this line at the time before this made this up and put this in. Um, and you can, in fact, remove it. It's going to be difficult to do that without changing any of the page layout. Here's my best guess. Um, yeah, and you but, can only do so much as a consultant. But I think mm-hmm. the big thing that you mentioned, if you were to take action and like, well, what does decolonization look like in TTRPGs is portraying, because it's all like at the core of what we do, mechanics and world building, right? Um, mm-hmm. From a world building perspective, you've given the solution right here, and it's portray societies from their perspective. I recently worked as a cultural consultant on a war game um, that I actually recommended you for, so I, I, they might have reached out to you. Uh, they have um, not reached out to me yet, okay. but I would um, love but to hear about it afterwards. <laughs> I recently worked on a war game, and it, ha- it was my, the first miniatures war game that I ever worked on. It was a very good experience, and the person was like, really wanted to hear my thoughts they were like rip it apart please um and they had done a really good job they had done a really good job and i love going into a project and not having to say much right um i make less money but (laughs) it means that there's a product here that that is has already been made with good intentions but one thing that they had was they had this big cosmos that has actually pulled together all the factions in the game Mm -hmm. but in the sort of narrative of this, I mean, you play war games and there isn't, some of them have a deep story. Some of them, there's not much of a story. Uh, this one, they, they pulled together all these factions that are, were representations of cultures from around the world into a single sort of space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a really bad example of that in the MMO New World by Amazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in this one, when they were describing the mythology, they were actually using some like Asian names for these deities. And my big discussion with them was, does everybody refer to these deities by this Asian name, including like this European faction akin to like the Bretonians from Warhammer? Like, do they all refer to them by that name? And they were like, oh, I never thought about that. I said, yeah, well, what if you had these deities that were representations of these ideals and things that are mechanically important to the game, but each faction views them differently or identifies them differently? It's the same thing if you look at, you know, dragons from around the world. I think the concept of the dragon is so fascinating because these cultures from all over the world are basically coming up with mythological reptiles almost Mm -hmm. simultaneously. Yeah, the coolest thing we can imagine is a really big lizard. It's a really big <laughs> lizard, and it's like totally people just finding dinosaur fossils. <laughs> um, but everybody's perception of a dragon or everybody, every cultural representation of a dragon is, is different. It's yeah. slightly different. And that's what I think we should see more in world building. It's, hey, these deities may exist. If the gods are real, because you have settings where the gods are ideals, but if the gods are real and the characters and the nations, the, 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 the rulers interact with them. Well, what if different cultures interpreted the gods differently? What if they had different names for them? What if their interactions were fundamentally different? Mm-hmm. And I think that is the foundation of some very, very cool world building. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds incredibly cool. And yeah, that's one of those things where like you can do a lot with 
these concepts, but people so far often haven't. Um, I figured out the uh, example I was going for okay. from the previous thing. Um, so one of the projects I worked on, I really liked working on, was Sa- the Southlands World Book for Cobalt Press, oh, where yeah. I was updating their Southland setting for 5th edition. And as part of it, like, I got two locations that it had, like, some, like, that it had different levels of handling to them. And I was given a free reign on hand, uh, on how to update them. One of them was, like, the twin kingdom, Knoll kingdom, queendoms, and, like, this uh, land of djinn that, or this land of people, like, kind of living under a djinn. Um, and I, while I could had an enormous amount of creative freedom and I loved working on the project, I'm pretty proud of what I did for it. There were fundamental limits in what I could do. Like, because of the nature of the setting, the gnolls couldn't not eat people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. However, wherever we end up, the gnolls eat people. (laughs) So how can we make that a little bit? How do we make that not a racial issue or how do we make that not like, as bad as a representation thing, how do we make it as like, yeah, it de- nobody wants to be eaten. This is a bad thing that's happening, but it's not like a racial issue. Whereas for Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, we all created our own settings for that. And so you were free to start with wherever you wanted to, uh, with whatever interpretation of the setting you wanted to go with. And all of us on that created pretty complex settings with their own conflicts going on in them. It wasn't that like this was a setting without violence or without oppression. It was just a thing created by the people from there or representative of it or like, or from its own perspective and with its own view of its own conflicts. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the, a key thing there was the last thing you said, right? The, Mm -hmm. the, the people of those lands are no longer background characters seeking help from outsiders. And I think that's a really important thing to, to have because even in 5th edition D&D, and I needed to confirm this, I went on, I went on D&D Beyond and I searched up Karatur and Zahara, right? And from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, the description of Karatur is far to the east, Past the wastes of the Horde Lands lie the empires of Sholung, Kozakura, Wa, and the other lands of the vast <laughs> continent. The other lands of the vast continent of Karatur. Um, to most people of Faerun, Karatur is like another world, and the tales told by travelers from its nations seem to confirm it. The gods that humans worship in Faerun are unknown there, as are common peoples such as gnomes and orcs. Other dragons, neither chromatic nor metallic, dwell in its lands and fly in its skies. That's wrong because the character camp setting is literally narrated by a flying dragon. But (laughs) I don't don't mean to pick out the lore. Um, And its mages practice forms of magic mysterious even to archwizards of Faerun. Stories of Karatur tell of gold and jade in great abundance, rich spices, silks, and other goods rare or unknown to Western lands alongside tales of shape-shifting spirit people, horns, giants, and nightmare monsters absent in Faerun. Literally, the entire paragraph yeah. describing Karatur is how would an outsider see mm-hmm. it? Not yeah. how would somebody from Karatur describe it? Yeah, like, and also in there, you see, I'm not, like, they haven't expanded on Karatur 5th edition, but in previous editions, Karatur had different metaphysics to the rest of the setting, because yes. the magic, like the spell, the 
spellcasters there literally work differently. And Zahara had different metaphysics to the rest of the setting, which mm-hmm. is a really common issue in these things where you go, yes, here is like the, the here is West Asia. Every, all of the metaphysics there work differently to Europe. And it's, it's a, it's a really like, it's an easy thing to miss that this is a problem, but you're literally saying, yes, everyone here is so alien to us. They work on different rules. You yeah, really, and, <laughs> and I mean, that exists in a, in a, in not magic, but that exists in a sense in the, in the real world, right? We operate on different cultural rules. When mm-hmm. we travel, we don't, we can take our values and our cultural practices to other places but we also have to follow their rules in, in a sense, right? Yeah, of but course, we don't morality on different and... physical rules. But we don't operate on different yes. physical rules. <laughs> Which and is, I, I think, where this could be, a, be an issue, where, like, hmm. you go, oh, yeah, and as you all know, um, double people can fly. That's just a thing in this setting. Why? Double people can fly. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't and, worry about it. Yeah. Um, but I think where... in order to, if we were to decolonize this description of Karatur, it would be to remove, I mean, remove all of it, first of all. But <laughs> the, the key things here are like talking about how it's perceived by travelers. Yeah. People confirm that this is like another world and the other lands. What are the other lands? The people of Karatur know what those lands are. That mm-hmm. Right? The people of Karatur knows what those lands are because you are framing Karatur with this description as a place that needs to be explored. A place yep. with treasures that need to be taken. Right, you are writing it in a in a way that entices adventurers mm-hmm. within within the world of D anD D to actually go and take, mm-hmm. right? And we have seen that with the most harmful practice of all time, the most damage one of the most damaging things to ever like occur in human history. It's British map making. Um, <laughs> It's, it's true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they had these ideas of lands that were, you know, far off, and this idea that they had to go and document everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then once it's documented, you've got to make a profit off of it. Once and it's documented, you're there yeah. already. You might as well stay. Yeah. Well, um, I've got this kind of crappy cousin who's not doing much. I might as well give him an army and a bunch of trade goods and tell him to make me a bunch of money with no regard to human consequence. Yeah, and then you also get these ideas of not only is this a place of profit, but this is also a place of sort of um, debauchery or a place of violence too. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the same books or Course Adventurer's Guide, Sahara, far to the south of Faerun, beyond Kalimshan, and even the jungles of Chult. Chult is a whole other story. Um, Chult is a whole other story. Um, Are the lands of fate. Mm -hmm. surrounded by waters thick with pirates and corsairs Zahara is a place less hospitable than most but still braved by travelers who hope to profit from its exotic goods and strange magics like Karatur Zahara seems a world away from Faerunians it is thought of as a vast desert sprinkled with glittering cities like scattered gems romantic tales abound of scimitar wielding rogues flying riding magic carpets uh and of genies bound in service to humans their mages called shair practice their magic with the aid of genies and it is said might carry the lineage of these elemental beings in their blood it's the same thing again it's that it's 
it's the exact same structure as well of Caratour. And it's, hey, this is a place that is being portrayed as dangerous. It is a place mm-hmm. that it's not hospitable to you, traveler. You yeah, will find this place hostile. It is an alien hostile. place with higher level encounters and better treasure. And you need to go there to find the encounters and get the treasure. Rather than like, here's a place your character might come from. Here's its relationship with the with Faerun. And here's how it perceives itself. As like, in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, that's probably what you want. For, what you what in, I think, a decolonial thing you would want from the description of Karatora Zakara is... Here's a rough overview of this, and here is how someone from there views the Sword Coast or why they might have come here rather than the other way around, as I think that gets you kind of into a much safer position of, hey, if you're making someone from one of these places, here's how they might have ended up in the location this book is about. Yeah, 100%. And we're not saying that you can't portray Sahara as a place that has violence. Violence exists everywhere. But there is nuance to why that violence is occurring, right? Yeah. Um, Caratour, yeah, the magic's different. Yeah, they have jade. Well, first of all, jade can be found in North America, but I don't expect <laughs> other people to know that. Um, I didn't know that. Until- yeah, you can find yeah. jade in North America. Um, but the, the thing is, yeah, these places are different. Mm-hmm. Just like the West is different from Zahara, just like the West is different from Caratour, just like Caratour is different from Zahara, right? Mm-hmm. And like you said, when we make our descriptions, if we were to rewrite these, we would say, hey, what do these people see of this land? What do they think of it, right? Sure, if there are genies and if they are behind all of the magic here, what does it mean to the people who wield this magic, not those who witness it, right? Um, I think... And like you know, the nature of the threats described for Zahara there were like pirates and bandits, which are things that are primarily a threat for people from afar coming into trade, rather than the threats someone from Zahara might note of their own thing, where they're like, I don't know, occasionally the city-states go to war, or like the weird body-snatching yak people who are in a supplement somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> or like maybe these pirates, maybe these bandits are actually people who are just trying to protect their lands. Yeah. Think about that too. And I mean, I mean, that just goes into an entire examination of North America. Um, <laughs> it's South America. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we've talked about this at like a, the highest level of like world building, right? We mm-hmm. want people to no longer be background characters. We want them to be the leads. They aren't seeking help from outsiders and how you portray their societies are from their perspectives, right? We want meaningful change in products. We want marginalized creators to be in decision-making positions. We want marginalized creators to be writing. We want marginalized creators to also serve as cultural consultants. And while we've said, yeah, cultural consultants sometimes do not wield as much power as they should on projects, cultural consultants are also extremely necessary for all projects. Because if I were to write something, what I could be writing, even though I'm Chinese, could be completely wrong, right? Just because mm-hmm. I look this way, just because I, I might have my academic qualifications, doesn't mean that I can't be checked on my perspective. Your own blind spot, your own writing is always your own worst blind spot. Yeah. Of course. And I mean, we also saw this, we also see this in other media, right? Also, this isn't our story to tell, and I'll like, we can, we could pass over it after I mention it. 
But there was, and this was like two years ago, uh, but there was a, uh, Marvel had announced a, either a miniseries or um, like a one-shot comic talking about all of these different Captain Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was um, like a Filipino-American, Captain America. And people were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And people who are in the Philippines are like, this is bad. Yeah. Um, and there was this sort of conflict between you know, those of the diaspora and, and those mm-hmm. not of the diaspora and their perceptions of America in this mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and this is why, you know, having a cultural consultant as well as a marginalized creator and having a team of marginalized creators is so important because you need to navigate these different, these difficult sort of intersections of harm caused by others. Um, I also think about those who are just doing homebrew, right? Not everyone wants to work in tabletop RPGs. Yeah. Not everyone wants to do it full time. Not everyone who listens to Asians represent works in the industry. I would say the vast majority of people who listen to us are just playing They're games at home game. with their friends. Mm-hmm. They're here for their own game. And they want to make sure that their game is made, I guess, more welcoming to everyone at the table. So maybe they're not going to do all these big rewrites. They're not going to do all these big changes. Maybe somebody already has a campaign setting and yeah, they have written it from the perspective of the locals. What else can they do? What are some smaller things that people can do to sort of decolonize their home game, right? To take away these systems of power or take away these like literal social and cultural sort of imbalances of colonial elements yeah i think the biggest one is to like really examine the elements of what you're putting into your game and seeing what is where does this actually come from what is its actual effect etc etc there's only so much you can do for a home game but also for a home game you can tailor it to your group so you should have a better idea of what you need to look for because you can see okay like these are the four people in my group these are the things that might affect them let me look through my plans here and like maybe check some books out at the library or do some research on the internet, et cetera, and like see what's coming up here. See, hey, is this like, is this monster I'm looking up, where does, where's its art inspiration from? Where's that art inspiration from? And sometimes it's, you know, a deformed miniature someone got in 1980 <laughs> that didn't get printed right. And that's like, you're fine. That's, it's, it's like, it is a Godzilla mini that never did get printed right. And like, I think that's the origin of the owl bear. It was just some kaiju mini that. Just, oh, really? Yeah, it's a misprint. And they grabbed it and was like, that's cool. Looks kind of like an owl and a bear. That's the monster. But sometimes it's like, oh, that came from minstrel theater or that came from stereotypes of, um, that came from like stereotypes about Indian bandits during the Raj or whatever, where you get to, oh, this is, this has much deeper roots than I thought it did. And that's something that. I need to either rework or take out for my home game. Um, Oftentimes, you can ask the people at your game with like, hey, I'm like, hey, I'm we're going to China in this next arc. What should I be on the lookout for? Keeping in mind that it is like 1910 in China. What am I going, what's going to go horribly wrong when I run this campaign? On the cusp of a rebellion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, a, I, I really like that point. Be, mm-hmm. it's, and it's giving agency to people, right? You can't expect somebody running a home game to completely rewrite 
the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide <laughs> or completely rewrite this old material that they've been playing through. Um, the one thing I think that's important is giving people agency. Mm-hmm. One thing that I like is that in my home game, you know, it's a good mix. I mean, uh, there's four players and myself, the DM. Um, one person has Chinese background, one person has Japanese background, they're, they're mixed, and then two people are white. And when Emma, who's on Asians represent, her character is coded as Japanese and comes from a land that is inspired by Japan. Um, when something comes up about her land, I will say, what happens in your culture? I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it up because I'm giving that player the power to speak from the perspective of their character. And I think that's super important to do. Um, you know, when, Folks are playing D&D and you encounter, and I I really want to kind of stress this on like the monster folks. Um, POC Gamer, Graham Barber, wrote a really good article about decolonizing D&D. And he said, decolonizing D&D in part involves transforming monster folk cultures into functional ones that don't Mm -hmm. rely on the narrative perspectives of outsiders, the players. Stop basically stop mo- othering monster yeah, ancestors. You need to treat people as people. Like, yeah, this is. So let's say you have a player who is playing as an orc and you encounter a group of orcs. Are you, the GM, going to describe how they react? Or do you think it might be narratively interesting to say, okay, how would you greet them and respond mm-hmm. accordingly and have a conversation at the table? Because you just went from basically defaulting it to a combat encounter to potentially something extremely interesting. Whereas like, oh, how would you like to greet them? How do people in your culture greet? And like, even when you are doing combat encounters, even when you do have like an oppositional relationship between the PCs and them, doing this can help make it as something that's like grounded in the culture. So if you meet, if you have an orc PC in your party and you meet a group of orcs and you ask them, okay, how do you know that these, like, they don't like you straight up. This is pro- yeah, like, what is the What is the sign? What, yeah. What tells you that they do not like you? Um, and stuff like that. That can help because it means that you're portraying a culture with its own stuff going on and its own baggage and hangups and positive points and, like, things that people love about the culture they came from. Uh, but it's also a culture where, like, just like a human culture in D&D, you may well meet other humans who are trying to kill you. That is a solid percentage of your yeah. sessions in any given D&D campaign is some other human wants to kill you. But generally, you have some idea of why these humans want to kill you rather than just because they're human. Or just because they, you know, of course they're brandishing swords. Maybe they're trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, but potentially, like, what if a greeting with a weapon is something cultural? That would be cool. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And it makes it so, you know, if like in a lot of D&D campaigns, if a human shows up and tries to kill you for no apparent reason, that's a plot hook. You want to learn why this guy is trying to kill you. If a troll shows up and tries to kill you for no apparent reason, random encounter table, I guess. Uh, whereas if you're doing this, if you're thinking through it, if you're decolonizing the culture of your game table, a troll showing up for no reason and trying to kill you tells you that something is up. Has a war broken out? Is there a famine on and people are turning to banditry? Um, is there some other thing going on? Like, et cetera, et cetera. It would lead to you asking questions of why is this happening? 
And that can bring up your D&D game, even if it's otherwise still a relatively standard game. I wrote an adventure for, it's not a D, it's not D&D, but I wrote an adventure for this indie RPG called Flip Tales. And it's really cool because there's no dice. It's like little plastic coins and you flip them. Uh-huh. It's, it's really neat. Um, and the adventure I wrote, and it's, it's designed for like younger players, but also adults. It's a, it's a really fun game. Um, but the adventure I wrote was actually about the conflict happening between a goblin settlement or a group of goblins and a human settlement. And the humans basically hire the adventurers to go deal with the goblins. But the whole story is about the humans going in, meeting with the goblin king to discuss a ceasefire and learning that the reason why the goblins are so hostile is because adventurers have been coming into their home and stealing all of their shit. (laughs) Um, And it's about sort of like dealing with, okay, the villains aren't actually the goblins. The villains are this group of assholes who are stealing shit at will. Um, And it kind of, I wanted to flip the script for young gamers to be like, hey, there are different motivations behind how people act in games, even if they're acting hostile towards you. Uh, We actually had a question. I think this is the perfect time to bring it up. We had that question from one of our community members, Kat, um, who said one statement I've heard from folks who are struggling with recognizing colonialism is that the indigenous peoples of a given region were fighting amongst each other before settlers arrived. While this is incredibly reductionist, so are TTRPG combat rules, which as written often encourage like a fight to the finish like you and I have talked about. Do you have any suggestions for making combat in traditional RPGs less about the sort of colonial dynamic of, of power over like locals? And I think that to provide context, this we could relate this to, yes, Karatur is a place to go find treasure and Sahara is a place to go find danger. Um, God, I can't believe I, I put my hips, my hands on my hips, <laughs> danger. Um, how do you make it less about that dynamic of an outsider coming in and taking through violence? Um, what do you do that? How do you do that? Or what suggestions do you have of games that already do this well? So, um, weirdly, D&D used to be better about this. One of the, this is actually a fairly modern development in RPGs, and it's a more modern development in war games as well. Mm. Traditionally, when the genre was more prototypical, it was based on, like, uh, the idea was that you would have morale for each side, and you're fighting I have over morale something. in my rules. Yes! For... <laughs> yeah. I have routing rules in, like, most of the, the faux write-ups for Guns Blazing. Um, but yeah, you would have morale in the rules, and people would just, if they decided this fight wasn't worth it anymore, they'd take them some casualties, etc., they'd run away. And this is one of the ones where I think that, like, decolonization isn't necessarily the most useful frame to view the specific issue of fights to the death through because the issue is related to that, but is actually much more related to the gamification of combat over time where things like morale, things like objective focused combat and the like have been steadily removed from the game as part of honing the experience or because people didn't recognize that this was such a part of the experience. So if you look at like morale rules in modern Warhammer 40k, um, they, they're just, you take X additional dead dudes if you face morale from Battleshock. And previously it was like, if you fail morale, you're going to retreat somewhat. Um, and you're going to like reposition and the like. And that's actually, that was kind of a simulation of a thing that would actually happen in fights where 
generally the outcome of a given gunfight or brawl in close quarters wasn't everyone dies, but people take some casualties. Eventually someone's morale breaks and they run and uh, or they surrender or whatever and the fight's over. And fights going all the way to the death is rare and unusual. Like to the knife is an expression because that is a strange and terrifying thing to have happen. Uh, a city fight in like on a bayonet charge and the like are terrifying oh because God, yeah. that's an unusual circumstance for combat. It's a fail state. Bad war was a term for hundreds of years through the colonial period. And even through the colonial period in a lot of these wars, they're taking surrenders and the like. You're not going all the way to the knife except in rare exceptions or like freak occurrences like Seringapatam or active genocide. Most of the time they're taking captives or they're accepting surrenders and the like. So you need to um, separate how do I decolonize how violence is approached in my game, which is a lot about like the motivations of violence and the outcomes of it and why are these things happening uh, yeah. versus the simple fact that violence is happening and the mechanics of that, which are things that far predate colonialism and will likely post-date once we're th like if even if decolonization succeeds in full we will likely be dealing with interstate violence and interpersonal violence going forward anyways um and so it's one of those things where decolonization is part of the answer but it isn't the entire answer so look at why fights are happening and what they're happening uh what they're happening over and then also look at what are the game mechanic changes that have brought you to this point and how can you change them? I wrote uh, I wrote The Art of Skirmishing for Kobold Press about the game mechanic side of this, which is an essay series just about, okay, how do I make my fights more skirmishy and how to make them more objective-focused? This is something that Dimension 20 does super well. Yeah. Most of its fights are like, how do we accomplish this thing in the, con in the, uh, in the context of a fight to the death? And actual fights where one side is going to be all dead at the end are an exception. Yeah, 100%. I think um, morale is something that you still see in modern TTRPGs, but really only in the OSR. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually really funny because the last episode was about the OSR. And in it, I talked about how people are like, oh, the OSR is just grindy and dungeon crawling. And I was like, the OSR has a lot of mechanical foundation that they've kind of brought from older editions of TTRPGs like D&D &D, um, to give you more narrative variety, right? Um, they have rules for rolling what happens at the start of an encounter. When you encounter somebody, how do they react to you? A reaction role is, is something that you see in a lot of OSR games. Or, you know, morale is a really common thing in Wandering Blades. It uses the same morale system that the vast majority of OSR games use, and it's every NPC has a morale score between 2 and 12-ish, mm -hmm. right? Now, other games like Morkborg, they're high, they can be higher or they can have no morale. But if certain conditions are met in a fight, maybe the leader of the adversaries is killed, or half of their force is depleted, or if you have a sole combatant and they're reduced to like a third of their health, you roll a morale roll. 2d6 is typically what you do. And the results of that will, will then determine, do they continue fighting to the death? Do they try to flee? Do they try to surrender? What do they do? And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, when it comes to combat, I think another thing that has kind of steered us in the direction we're taking now is the idea of 
combat for XP. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people think, well, I want to level up. I guess I have to kill shit to level yeah. up. And I and think I th- that video games were a big influence on that one, where yep. the standard video game design is like, uh, for a long time, and even now, uh, is just like, you will get XP for combat. That's how you should expect to be getting to be grinding for your levels and the like. And that bleeds over into how people expect to play tabletop games. And so it bleeds over into how people actually play tabletop games. It's why I like milestones. Now, if I'm going to make a recommendation, I'm going to make a recommendation that I don't think I've made on the podcast in a long time. And I had to pull it up on DriveThruRPG. And it's a game called Fellowship. Um, so Fellowship is a... It's like a fantasy RPG inspired by like obviously like Lord of the Rings, but also like Jojo Bizarre Adventure, Jojo's Bizarre Adventures. Um, and in it, there's this like great threat to the world. And every player at the table, every member of the fellowship, huh, um, actually plays as a champion of their people. So literally in the description, you are playing as a hero, a champion of your people, and you are the truth in all things related to your people. When you play as an elf, you decide what the elves are, what their culture is like, what they value and care about, what their relationship is with the rest of the world. When someone asks about the elves, all eyes will turn to you for the answer. And that's exactly what we are talking about here, right? If you have a player, they could be, and this is a conversation to be had with the, with the table, they could be the representative of their people. If you have a guidebook, that guidebook, the answers about the world, about Sahara, Karatur, right? The answers should be written from the perspective of somebody who is in that culture, mm-hmm. um, who is a representative of that culture, not written by somebody who is in the literal sense of like the game designer publisher, but also in the narrative sense, uh, not an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, so my re- recommendation is always fellowship because I think it's a very interesting exercise in I've got to give that a try you've got to give it a try right uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's literally everything we've been talking about right perspective mm-hmm. it's a shift in perspective right it is the examination of who is the source of truth right who is the source of power as well right because if we're talking about literal colonialism we're certainly talking about who is the source of power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about like decolonialism, decolonialization from a social perspective, like the ideas, the legacy of the past, it should come from the culture, right? And then from a cultural perspective, who holds on to these things? Who is affected by the past? Um, and if you basically shift perspective from outsider to insider, like fellowship does you can actually rebalance that these these power dynamics um so it's something i recommend even if you don't play fellowship like i have no ties to this game by the way (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you even even if you don't play fellowship take the idea of each player being a representative of their people into your game of DD, into your game of pathfinder right um if you have a group and two of them are elves, well, ask them, how would people react? Or I actually had a game where we had a character, uh, and it's just coming to me now, where one of their NPC companions died, and the NPC companion was a dwarf. And they it was actually the cutest thing. It was a group of teenagers that I was DMing. 
and they wanted to put on a funeral for this NPC. And I went to one of the players who was playing a dwarf. His name was Benny, not the character, but the player. I said, Benny, what would the funeral look like? And we all kind of like brainstormed and helped Benny actually come up with the idea. But Benny's character was the one that was like, we're going to do it like this. And we literally had a funeral in the way that this one character would know it to happen and offered like the correct rites and things like that. It's like if you have like a cleric in D&D and you have a person, another character of a different culture dies, like, yes, I'm going to like, <laughs> I'm going to send them away. Uh, <laughs> I <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> um, so I, I think a big one is literally that shift in perspective. That is the easiest thing that people can do. Mm-hmm. Apart from acting with your dollars, right? Like literally giving marginalized stories space in the industry by purchasing products. Like mm-hmm. Coyote and Crow is a really high profile one. Yeah. Right. Like and another it. high profile one that I, or one that I hope will have just as much success as Coyote and Crow is Guns Blazing. I want to know all about Guns Blazing because that's, that's a project that you have that's launching very soon. Oh yes. Guns Blazing. And, emb- and it embodies everything we're talking about, right? Yeah. So Guns Blazing is launching on March 28th. It is in a, it is in a very real sense about that like literal decolonization segment of this decolonial process because it is set in the 1920s. It's an alternate history. There are some changes in the timeline and the like. There are gin Mm -hmm. everywhere. But it is very much in that period of like the Antonio Gramsci quote, right? The old world is dying. The new struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. It's the colonial era is ending and people are realizing that you have all these works from people like as a lot of civilian populations in Europe realize oh this is a pretty evil thing we're doing (laughs) and also you have a lot of movements across the world becoming ever more strident in their uh, in their uh struggle for freedom and for self-determination um where you'll have things where like You'll have things like oh, some of the, there have been arguments made by smarter academics than I that some of the like evils of the age in Europe, things like fascism, were the ethics of colonialism coming home to roost. Where if this is acceptable to do in India, if this is acceptable to do in Kenya, if this is acceptable to do across both North and South America or in Australia, then clearly it must also be ethical to do in Europe. And so people then did it in Europe and the result is like, World War One and World War Two, uh, the result is hor- horrifying, um, and it's kind of the monsters of the age emerging and coming home to roost. And Guns Blazing literalizes a lot of that in the form of jinn and other monsters. Um, a lot of the terminology comes from is like comes from Islam. Uh, the kind of in-universe thing is that the this change started kind of in Persia, and it is in-universe a contentious topic of political debate that the term for things from the realm of jinn is jinn and that the term for the realm of jinn is the realm of jinn is a thing people argue about all the time right uh, whereas like persia is fairly powerful off of making first contact as it were and has kind of pushed this as as a narrative and one of the things that you even if you per, even if like the persian government is likely to be one of your bigger backers in game that may be a very real point of contention if you're from East Asia, if you're from 
China or Indonesia or the Philippines or India, if you're like not a Muslim character and you're from India, the fact that you might be playing a Rakshasa and on a lot of government documents, you're classified as type of jinn, Rakshasa, and that could rankle. Um, what It has a big focus on like a lot of the contradictions and struggles in that move for freedom and independence and like the international nature of a lot of it and how that would clash with itself where you have all of these stories about international movements that want to help each other and they meet each other and they have these irreconcilable differences. Um, the one that I bring up a lot is like the communist movement in Europe versus the communist movement in Southeast Asia where theoretically they're both all about the same things and then like that worked out very differently that worked out very differently and very even differently. at the time they knew it because people from southeast asia would go over to europe to talk about this and ask for help and they would go we're not giving up our religion we're not giving up our cultural stuff we're not giving up like we're not taking on your form of cult we're not trading one master for another this is a very different thing than the deal you claim to be selling us um, and it's about, like, the differences between the various independence movements in India and the fragility of history, where we envision history as happening in a pretty particular way. And when alternate history is made, it's generally about these really big, obvious turning points around, like, maybe the Nazis win, maybe the Confederates win. Those mm -hmm. two seem to be the really popular one for some reason. Uh, but whereas, like, Things like um, the fact that India, the Indian subcontinent, is three countries and the nature of those three countries, like Pakistan, India, and uh, Bangladesh, those are very recent ideas of countries. Yeah. Uh, that could have gone very differently. In Guns Blazing, you have, like, the British Raj is still in North India and, like, to a degree, hey. Southern India. Mysore is still independent. The Madras presidency has become independent in a rebellion, and that makes for a very different India in 1925, and that means that in 20 years or 30 years, whenever the rest of India frees itself, it's going to look completely different. The idea of Indian nationalism has changed. Like, the idea of Italy as a single country is very recent. Yes. <laughs> you can blame a weird amount of historical happenings on Napoleon uh, for this one. Um, the idea, like, a lot of this stuff that, the idea of America as, like, from sea to shining sea, of, like, clearly conquering all the way to California was inevitable, that's incredibly recent. Um, the, like, there are a couple of things where if those went differently, you could get a very different America as of 1925. And that's the sort of thing I'm exploring with the game. And there's a lot of this that I consider myself qualified to talk about, like broad generalities with America or like India, but there are parts of it that I'm not. And I think probably the biggest thing I'm doing in Guns Blazing towards decolonization isn't going to be anything I'd write in the book. It's going to be the guest writer program, um, where if the book funds at all, I've got six people, four of them pretty new to the industry, um, who I'm giving shots at writing part like parts of their history into the game. And as we hit stretch goals, I'm going to be bringing on more people. I have 17 people signed on theoretically at the moment and more going on where they're going to have a lot of freedom in what sort of thing they're writing about and how and um, what like what sort of stuff they're writing about, how they want to contribute to the book and the setting and be able to portray cultures they come from or that are important to them. Um, with which is kind of it's basically me paying forward 
all of the goodwill I was offered at Big Bad Con 2019, where like you got me on, you allow, allowed me on Asians Represent, like one of your earlier episodes, as a guy who had published two things, both self-published. I hadn't got none of my stuff for freelance work had been out yet, and none of it had been negotiated when you offered me the spot just on the strength of uh, it was never yours. Um, Wolfgang Bauer and Cobalt Press gave me my first shots at like writing essays freelance. Grant Howitt gave me my first shot at adventure writing with Shadow Operation, stuff like that. That's a thing. Like, in terms of the decolonial process, the theory is great. The practice is picking up someone, picking someone with less advantages than you have and giving them a shot and taking a risk on them and giving them cash, like, and yep. credits, like credit to their name in a published work. Um, and I think, like, while I'm very proud of a lot of the theoretical stuff that's going into Guns Blazing and a lot of the world building and the like, um, this is kind of the thing I view as more important for bettering the industry after this book publishes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's what we're all looking for, right? Mm-hmm. We We are seeing this right now with this surge of Asian storytelling with I mean, I am Oscar award winning director Daniel Kwan. Um, no, I am not. I am the I am the the, the Daniel Kwan who disappoints his mother. Uh, I am not the Daniel Kwan that won the Oscar, although I got a lot of messages about that. Um, but it's this idea of taking a chance on people, right? Mm-hmm. Kiki Kwan took Daniel. The Daniels took a chance, right? The Daniels like this is this part is for you. Right? This is your story. Let's tell it, right? Um, with Guns Blazing, with other projects too, like Unbreakable, it's it is literally you're doing exactly what everybody should be doing, right? Cash mm-hmm. and credit. I love that. It's it's great that you are. I think one of the things that we fall into in this industry, I think, just the creative industries in general, is relying on folks with an established base or name, right? Um, and with marginalized communities, we end up treating those people like the representations mm-hmm. of all Asians, right? Yeah. When folks reach out to me and they're like, hey, I want to hire you as a cultural consultant. I'll be like, well, okay, what's the project? They'll be like, okay, it's based on like feudal Japan. I'm like, okay, well, here's who I'm going to recommend. It's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important for us to do as our profile, comparatively small to the rest of the world, but our profile and power, because we are talking about power, we are talking about control here, right? As our power and the degree of control we have on work in this industry increases, we need to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And because even though we are marginalized people, it doesn't mean that we cannot be, you know, we can't commit. Yeah, similar it's so easy acts, to pull right? the ladder up after you. Like, or or just like to, to, or even to just go and, you know, say, well, I couldn't possibly produce something that is yeah. that reeks of colonialism because I am a marginalized person, mm-hmm. right? So it's very important for us to make sure that we keep our biases in check, but also bring in other voices. So I like that you're like, hey, if we get funded at the base level, it will have this many writers, not just me. Mm-hmm. And as we get more and more funding, we bring in, more and more perspectives. And I think that's super important to telling this alternate history, this history of alternate history of freedom and resistance, right? Because it can't just be you. Yeah. It can't just be you. And the 
like the backers and people who are prospective backers should want to back guns blazing because it only makes the story richer. Mm-hmm. It only makes the story richer. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and this actually aligns really well with a question that Mark J from our community uh, wrote, actually aligns really well with not only the time period, but also the idea of all of these different voices in Guns Blazing. And Mark asked, most all games I've played with non-POCs automatically have a no racism as a hard line in their session zero safety tools, pre-input from other players. However, to play a POC character in a world where somehow racism doesn't exist could be considering could be considered denying their lived experience as a POC and essentially whitewashing, aka a form of colonizing games. Would allowing POC to be the final decider on whether racism should exist and to determine their comfort level with racism be an act of decolonization in gaming? And I, I want to it- kind of maybe so I read that question verbatim. I want to kind of maybe add to it. Mm -hmm. One, yes, there should be a conversation at the table because there are also folks who are running the game and might have to narratively portray racism if that's what you want. So everybody needs to be kind of bought in. But yes, there should be a conversation. The question as I want to reframe it for Guns Blazing is the 1920s is like, a really, really rough time for a lot of people around the world. And the legacy of that still lives on now. How are you going to, you know, account for that? Is it going to be present in the game? It's going to be present in the game. I think it would be on some level dishonest not to, in that like pretending that this didn't exist when you're dealing with actual history is very different from making a secondary world where you don't deal with that. Like, One of the things I recommend to people is that, like, if you're dealing with a historical setting, you need to reckon with how these things happen in some way. Guns Blazing's approach is that it has a pretty robust, like, calibration and safety tool section where Mm. for session zero, you talk about this stuff and it guides you through. These are issues we're going to have to deal with in a game of Guns Blazing through stuff like, you know, the racism of the period, the sexism of the period, etc. Uh, the violence of the game. Like, this is on some level, again, like, a lot of the combat mechanics of Guns Blazing are on some level a love letter to, like, first-person shooters. And so violence okay. is an assumed part of it. But the level of violence and the nature of violence that your group is comfortable with is going to be very different. Like, one of the types of enemies is an embodiment of industrialized warfare and its effect on everyone, on, like, civilian populations and the like. And so, what are the, you know, are you comfortable with, like, are you comfortable with the worst stuff that can come out of that? And, you know, one of the things that there's, like, yeah, your players might say, hey, we're good with violence, and but you need to clear with them before you use this thing. Are you good with that kid is attached to a landmine? Probably not. Yeah, well, what, what kind of, what to what degree of violence are you yeah. okay with? People, right. when people say, oh, violence, you know, it could be like a punch in the face or it could be somebody getting blown apart yeah. by an anti-tank rifle because we know anti-tank mm-hmm. rifles existed at that time. Yeah. Um, I also looked at the art in your in the trailer and I was like, there are firearms there. Um, and I mean, there are, there were some very scary firearms at the time. Oh yeah. There were uh, some scary and weird firearms because it was this kind of 
transitional and developmental period, one of the very fun yeah. things to do for Guns Blazing is just look at all the weird vehicles that were coming out at this time, where everyone knew, like, <laughs> yeah. what a tank is roughly and what a fighter plane is yep. roughly. They didn't necessarily have good ideas for it. Um, but yeah, one of the, like, um, I think especially for games about revolution, and I don't knock any game about revolution that doesn't go into this, where it is easy to go, you fight the bad guys, it's rough, it can be bad, and then you win, but you don't have to do anything morally objectionable. And that's a valid way to play Guns Blazing. But when you look at, like, the history of revolutionaries and the like, you will have people who went out to, like, to uh, kill, like, a... Who, A, like, were throwing grenades at, like, administrators or whatever, uh, who are a part of the colonial system, but we're also civilians. And that's something that you will have to reckon with with your game. You will also have people who missed their target or like in World War II with the French resistance, there are a lot of like family members and um, people who are called collaborators in the historical record. But all we actually know about what they did is they were in the car when it got firebombed. And that may have been their only sin. Um, And that's something where like, is your group comfortable with that is something you should cover in safety tools. And Guns Blazing is pretty forward about like, these are the horrors of the age. You probably don't want to deal with all of them. Here's the conversation you should be having with your group. Here's like, here are the lines and like, here's the overview of how lines and bails work. Here's the overview of how the X card works. Set up your game so that it's something that everyone's going to at least be comfortable with and want to play with and have fun with, even if that fun is super grim. Like there are groups I know I play with some groups who are pretty much on board for like, yeah, it is in the course of a revolution and civil war, pretty terrible things are going to happen. And we are fairly likely to be complicit in some of it. Um, I mean, Look at did you did you ever watch Andor? Have you watched Andor? Yeah, yet? I love Luthen. Andor. Yeah. Andor is great. Think about Luthen and how mm-hmm. you know he's talking to his spy and he's like, "Oh, I have a family." He's like, "Look at all the shit I've sacrificed." Yeah, I will. Like, God, that is such I, a good I, speech. There's that line where he says, "Like, I made my mind in a sunless place." Place, yeah. And it's like a sunless space. Like, space. holy shit! Yeah, for like and, a better tomorrow, I will never see. Yeah, and. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. We can't knock designers for not exploring yeah. those things, right? Um, but, and like, I'm not going. And a lot of guns blazing groups are probably also not going to do that. It is entirely valid if you want to run your guns blazing game as closer to the Mandalorian or Episode Four than Andor. It's just I want it to also be valid if you want to run Andor. Absolutely, and you'll you'll put mechanics in place to do it. And I know, like. You like game mechanics. I know that this is mm-hmm. a tactical, fast-paced combat game because yep. if I know you, you like war games, right? Yeah. But you also like the story and you like the geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like that there is this intentionality with your design. It's like, no, you can play it this way, you can play it this way, but there is this underlying theme. Now, mm-hmm. I do want to ask to like go back to Mark's question about you know decision-making around like racism and really heavy topics in game are you also having that conversation with all of the writers that are being brought on too um i am going to be having that conversation with all the writers that are brought on like kind of the big writer brief went over like these are the themes of the game these are the Mm. things that like we're aiming for and um we're going to be kind of going more in depth with it but everyone who's on board the project right now has kind of seen the brief with these are the themes we're working with 
these are the things we need to keep in mind when writing for Guns Blazing. And everybody's sort of bought in. So it's yeah. like they know what they're getting. They had an opportunity to like not and like decline if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. But everybody's like, kind of on board. Yeah. And they can st like they're still like they can still back out if they so choose. It's one of those things I am trying to keep open, um, especially because I got way more interest than I thought I would. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I, yeah, it's easy to forget in this space that like our voices do actually have a fair amount of clout where a lot of people do want to be involved in a project because we're we're working on it. Um and like that's easy to forget and it kind of reiterates how important it is to uh communicate these things. And yeah, like that is a conversation that is a conversation where the answer needs to be okay with the most vulnerable person in your group for that part of the conversation. A hundred percent. Everybody needs to be on board. And that's why I think when we talk about, you know, Mark's question about basically eliminating one's perspective or one's experience with racism, or when we talk about how we can let the, we can, you could literally decolonize your home game by simply giving players more agency over the characters they play, mm -hmm. right? Over the people they portray or the cultures that they literally embody um, or how, you know, companies can essentially rewrite their settings, but from the perspective of the locals. Uh, there are, we've talked about a lot on this episode and I'm very, very excited for Guns Blazing. And I know a lot of people are probably already vibing with the themes, right? It's a very intriguing time period, but it also has a very good message to it, right? It's a message about like taking back power. Mm-hmm. But people are also going to say, well, okay, I really like this. And there have been a lot of TTRPGs that I've like been like, oh, I really love the idea of it. But I went into it not knowing how it would play out literally. So from a mechanical perspective, can you tell us a little bit about like Guns Blazing? What is it like akin to? Is it like, is it crunchy? Is it like rules light? Where does it fall on that spectrum? Yeah, so this is a crunchy system. Uh, it has a very crunchy tactical combat system and kind of a step back for the narrative system, which is closer to like Genesis meets Blades in the Dark is kind of how I've been describing it to people. You've got a dice pool system. Uh, you're generating successes and using those to purchase success, advantage, and buying off complications to the things you do. So outside of combat, this lets you get into like complicated situations and resolve them with one role for what's the political fallout of this? Did you succeed at it? Did you get anything else out of it? Have you like made a friend while you were trying to accomplish this? There's going to be a show. Uh, there's actually going to be a showcase of it. We recorded an actual play releasing on Utopia uh, on the 25th and 27th um, in combat. It's a very crunchy tactical system. That's pretty lethal. Like nice. most, NP yeah, most NPCs have one wound in war game style or one injury in war game style. If you deal a good hit to someone, they die. But our um, the caveat to that is that like hitting someone with an attack doesn't mean you've shot them with a bullet. It means this exchange of fire has gone in your direction. So that adva same advantage and complication system means you could alternately be purchasing conditions. You could be purchasing like forced movement or repositioning yourself. You could be using abilities with the successes that you've purchased, uh, uh, that you've rolled in your dice pool. 
And um, what was it? Uh, and that that means that like even though you, an enemy has one injury, they might have it might be pretty hard to deal that one injury to them, even if yeah. you hit them with an attack, because the attack represents advantage rather than you've killed you've hit this person with a bullet. Uh, similarly, player characters have three injury as like you have some degree of like basically plot shields of one bad dice roll shouldn't end your night. Um, but you are still fairly fragile. There is a stamina, it's an alternating activation stamina system. So oh, it's very it, much like a war game. Yeah, it is very much like a war game. Uh, any one character, uh, any one PC spends stamina to take it like to take a turn and you've got 12 stamina over a round. So after the enemy activates and one of them does something, you can take okay. another turn. It's very much a war game. Ally. Yeah, and you can spend a much smaller amount of stamina awesome. to react, both to allies and to enemies. So if your ally is like laying down a hail of machine gun fire down that way, you can rush across a gap while they're covering you. Or if an enemy is shooting at you, you can shoot back at them and make that a contested roll. But all of your checks when you're react reacting are much more difficult. So it's a it's not reliable to react to people, but it's still important to do to defend yourself because otherwise things can go very badly for you very quickly. Um, so it takes a lot from games like Infinity and its regular uh, yeah. order system. <laughs> it takes a lot from like Battletech and how its alternating activations work and stuff like that. It has a... A lot of RPGs do this now, but to like simplify enemies and so like you could put 10, 15 enemies in an encounter like it's a first-person shooter without slowing the game down to a crawl. Enemies are consolidated into squads who, like, you use one activation, you move the entire squad, one of them does a thing. Any of the other ones who can see that thing support it. So, like, if you're facing a squad of three guys, two of them see you, they activate and fire, they're getting a small bonus because one of them, one of their extra guys sees you, but your GM's only actually activating one enemy who has three health, and each health is a guy in that squad. That's um, cool. Yeah. And so it also really cool. means, yeah, and they degrade naturally because as you kill them, they lose people. As you take out like the dude with the heavy weapon, that squad's now just got rifles or that group of monsters, uh, all of the monsters have kind of their own ways to interact with it. So like the Montjuge, which are the industrialized warfare faction, have these people that they've cut apart and put back together as like mm -hmm. literalizing using people as grist for the machinery of war. Yes, you're using people as material for the machinery of war. You need a spit you need to make a foot soldier, you need more or less two legs, one arm, a gun, you can just sew that in wherever it'll fit. Uh you, the arm does not need to be attached to the gun. You could rig up something else there. They don't need to be able to speak, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, where like it does horrific body horror stuff to people to make them into its foot soldiers and its foot soldiers are terrifying but really fragile because they're disposable machinery made for lethality or like um Iram which is the kind of embodiment of colonialism as kind of an extractive parasite which is like this old fungus monster that some british expedition dug up in the empty quarter brought it back accidentally revived it and it went like hey if you if you feed me people i will give you treasure and monsters that will serve your every whim and oh. the british emperor went that sounds great like yeah the persians have this army of jinn and like all of this stuff my source brought out a new generation of rockets fungus monsters sound great we'll grab we'll take it and a something. bunch of <laughs> yeah 
And a bunch of other colonial powers have kind of picked up on it because Aram is extremely mercenary. It will, it will, if you let it prey on people, it will give you wealth and monsters that are loyal to you. There is no backstab waiting for you when it has grown enough power because it's kind of embodying that idea of the colonial machine will feed you as long as you continue to feed it. And it's easy to forget what you're doing and the backlash that's building up from it. Um, and even after you've gotten rid of like the British or the French or whoever the local colonial power is, the fungus is still there. It'll still work for you if you keep letting it do its thing. Uh, and like to kind of represent, even once the colonizers are gone, there is these very real scars and strictures of colonial power and continuations of these injustices that can continue well after, um, and in many cases historically have continued, well after the initial fight was won. I, I love that. I think a lot of people, and I said this in the last episode of the podcast, a lot of people look and they think, oh, crunch, oh, like, oh, rules and, and all of that. And I say, you know, when you're dealing with a heavy subject matter, when you're dealing mm -hmm. with something dark, I personally like having rules because a lot of rules or like a clear rule structure takes a lot of the heavy decision making off of the players, off of the GM, and allows them to focus on the narrative, allows them to focus on the story. I also think that having crunchy combat also enables this sense of danger mm -hmm. and how every encounter should have meaning and intent behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds really awesome, and it sounds like you are really bringing in your love of wargaming because oh yes, I, you, it sounds it sounds incredible. And I will say this to people who are listening: if you are like, oh, wargaming, oh, rules, oh, tactics. I strongly suggest you give it a try. I strongly suggest you broaden your horizons, try something different, but also Bashir has a very proven track record of just producing incredible, incredible work, not only from like a narrative perspective, but also just as a, from a technical writing perspective. I think communicating rules is something that is a skill um, that is required in this industry, especially if you're designing crunchy games and you are someone who has that skill. So Thank you. I am super, super excited for mm -hmm. this. I cannot wait for this to come out. I know it comes out at the end of the month. So folks will be able to watch this podcast and listen to this audio beforehand. I know that. I mean, I'm going to be like, I cannot wait for this to come out. I cannot wait to signal boost this uh, with our platform, with my platform. I just can't wait for people to kind of be able to act on what they learned in this episode of the podcast about decolonization, about shifting perspectives, about rebalancing power, and do it in a game that was designed as a tool to enable that, designed mm -hmm. as a tool to kind of examine violence, power dynamics, freedom, fear. Um, I'm really, I'm really excited. And I love the intent behind it from a business perspective too, and giving people a chance to actually enter the industry and share their perspectives, which is, I think, something that's very commendable and important to do. Um, now, that said, we also have a lot of people to thank for just us as a platform. Asians Represent has been around for a really long time at this point. Um, we are still like the only Asian like tabletop podcast that I know of and I guess that also makes us the longest running one too. Um, but the reason why we've been able to have so much longevity 
Um, not only is because we, we, there are amazing people who have interesting things to say and have like incredible knowledge like you, Bashir, but also because, you know, we have supporters on Patreon. We have an amazing community of people who are supporting the podcast, who are allowing us to upgrade our gear, allowing us to, you know, make our community safer, allowing us to, you know, be experimental with our content, maybe try to go to a con. Uh, currently, we are talking about doing Asians Represent Live at Big Bad Con, um, which is good. Is it an exciting idea? But that's all thanks to our patrons. Like we have some incredible patrons, especially our most honorable ones. Um, you know, like Metal Weave Games, uh, Valorous Games, who is going to be publishing Wandering Blades because I'm also co-authoring it with the owner of Valorous Games, Liana. So I'm super excited. Um, Dungeon Glitch slash Matt, who is constantly on Twitter talking and I'm just talking, everybody's talking on Twitter, but uplifting voices of marginalized mm -hmm. peoples. And of course, the most honorable times too, Epic Impulse, Michelle, Stefan, Bob C, all of these amazing people who are making sure that Asians represent can continue to uplift people and give people opportunities. Like it's given me, I've had so many opportunities because of Asians represented because of what I've been able to do. And my goal with this platform has always been to pay it forward and to make sure other people get opportunities. And I'm so stoked that you're doing this Bashir and to see everything that you've done between when you and I first met and to when yeah. you were first on the podcast to now. Yeah. It's and literally unfathomable to me that I got here. Like when the Nebula Norm news came in, it was like, I didn't dream of that as a little kid because that seemed too far fetched. <laughs> yeah. And now, and hopefully you win because then hopefully. there's going to be a whole, whole generation of people who will then be able to see this as something attainable and achievable. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you're also now paying it forward with all of these creators who are coming on to guns blazing. So I'm hoping that people are going to go, and back Guns Blazing, not just to its goal, but well beyond its goal, because there are going to be other stories, and I really want to see this. And I hope that one day, you know, like, well, hopefully, you know, I get, I'm, I'm going to see you this year at Big Bad Con. Hopefully, you know, like, like fingers crossed, we everything works out, and we all get to reunite in person. Um, but just know that I am very appreciative of all you do for the community. Um, you are a you know, you are like a very good example of somebody who has achieved a lot in tabletop games without putting down people. Mm. And that's Thank rare. Um, and so I am always happy. And I said this to you in private. I'll say it to you in public too. I'm always happy to have you on the show and have our platform help you help more people. Um, Thank you. That means so much to me. <laughs> And also, you know, you are the person who you're the only person in the world who can confirm that I beat Elden Ring. <laughs> you're the yep. only person in the world who can confirm that I beat Elden Ring on a shred of health. And is honestly one of the one witness, the one witness that uh, that I that I achieved that goal. Um, but that said, Bashir, thank you for coming on to Asians Represent again after this long time away from the podcast, but never away from the community. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very, very excited for the future of Guns Blazing, and I look forward to even more Guns Blazing content. Like, I want supplements. I want, I want more. Yeah. Because in the <laughs> traditional wargaming, uh, in the wargaming tradition, it's not a true war game unless you 
release a codex every year <laughs> with minor revisions. Uh, um, pretty much. There, depending GW. on how successful it is, there may be a war game in the offing. Depending oh, this, on how oh, successful uh, it is. <laughs> see, I I think more people should play war games, but I also think like skirmish games too, because I know that there is a financial barrier to entry into war games. Um, but I love narrative skirmish games like Rangers of Shadow Deep. Yeah, Rangers um, of Shadow Deep is really cool. It's a really cool one. If people like D and D um and like the idea of a choose your own adventure but also like the idea of using minis and tactics Whew, rangers of shadow deep um you can play that now until guns blazing comes out <laughs> after it's extremely overfunded on kickstarter i can't wait um, all right yeah but that said bashir thank you for joining me for episode 67 of asians represent we've been going for like several years there have been more than 67 episodes it's just our whole the numbering system and that's my fault. This is like, this has got to be in the episode, like almost 200 or something. Um, but Bashir, thanks for joining me for this episode. And thank you for like having this heavy conversation about decolonialization. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was really not, it was, I really enjoyed it. Like this was great. We'll do it. We'll do it again when that project we can't talk about comes out <laughs> and we'll talk about it on this podcast. All right. Well, that said, bye everyone. We'll see you next time for Asians Represent. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing Guns Blazing get uh, fully funded in the future.